Thank you for listening to the article podcast from the UBS Art Advisory Team in the United States, which guides individuals and families toward best practices and principles to build, maintain, and plan for exceptional, lasting collections. My name is Matthew Newton, UBS Art Advisory Specialist for the U.S., and host of these podcasts, in which UBS will share insights from practitioners in the art and collectibles world. While my guests and I sometimes discuss services and capabilities that they and their organizations provide, please note that UBS has no formal affiliation with any of our guests or their organizations, and in no way is UBS promoting or endorsing our guests or their organizations. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for listening to the article podcast from the UBS Art Advisory in the United States. My name is Matthew Newton, UBS Art Advisory Specialist. The UBS Art Advisory guides individuals and families toward the principles and best practices to build, maintain, and plan for exceptional, lasting collections. For today's episode, I'm delighted to have Mari Claudia Jimenez, Chairman, President, Americas, and Head of Global Business Development at Sotheby's. Join us at the UBS U.S. headquarters on Avenue of the Americas in New York City. Welcome, Mari Claudia. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Great. So Sotheby's recently announced that they will carry the Emily Fisher Landau collection during the major fall auctions this November. This was big news, of course, as the Fisher Landau collection is one of the most substantial collections of 20th century and contemporary art. And Mrs. Fisher Landau was further famous for her generosity to institutions such as the Whitney Museum of American Art, and also to many important artists. So the audience for this conversation is the family office clients of UBS and their financial advisors. One objective for today is to provide insight to our family office collecting clients on the estate consignment process, as many of them will at some point consider that possibility themselves. It is also an opportunity for those still building collections to learn a bit more about the works coming up for sale at this auction. So, great. Uh, Mari Claudia, to give context on who we're hearing from today, uh, could you share briefly a bit about your background and how you arrived uh, at your role at Sotheby's? Absolutely. So, I'm actually trained as a lawyer, and my background is as an attorney, and I spent 13 years in private practice at a small, uh, mid-sized firm here in New York City, really practicing exclusively in the area of art law. So, I was very familiar with you know, having collector clients and people who were disposing of very large art collections and really sat on the side of the client when it it came to these sort of uh, beauty contests, if you will, between auction houses as to who was going to be the winner of a major estate. So around seven years ago, I got the opportunity to go to Sotheby's and uh, take on a role essentially working with estates and fiduciaries in this type of contract negotiations. And um, I jumped at the chance to be able to sit on the other side and see how the proverbial sausage is made, so so to speak. That's fantastic. I, I love the idea of going from kind of the client side to to the auction side, kind of thinking about it from that from both angles of that. I'm curious to hear a little bit too about the difference between uh, the legal world and and the art world from your perspective on that. Yeah. Well, I think you know when I was working as the client's attorney on a lot of these, you know 
discussions and negotiations. I'm obviously looking at this from a very pragmatic and practical perspective of, you know, what is the best practice with regard to a sale and what are the, you know, possible liabilities or risks that a client might be engaging in or an estate might be engaging in or contracting, you know, with an auction house with regard to. Um, and I realize that now that I'm on this side, when you're dealing with a live client, um, you're dealing with a lot of personal relationships. You're dealing with a lot of other sort of political things that maybe actually don't have anything to do with the law and with best practices. And clients often like to do things the way they've always done them. And they don't necessarily, you know, care if perhaps this is the best place to sell their work, but they love dealing with so-and-so and that's what they're going to do. And they're going to go forward regardless of what their lawyers might have to say about it. So I do see the power of those relationships in action now that I'm at Sotheby's. It is really fascinating to think about this. I, I speak with clients about this a lot, about how at the end of the day, the art world is still very much a relationship business, you know, as, as much. much as things are automated or not, or sort of moved online, or, or the data side of it, there's really a huge relationship component. I think especially thinking of our uh, our family office clients and the, the types of relationships they tend to have built uh, over the years, that, that's especially true. Without question. I think we see this over and over again with some of our colleagues who have been in, you know, in the art world for 40, 50 years. It is deep relationships that lead them to getting major consignments. And it's because they've been there throughout the longevity of that person's collecting journey. And they really feel that they have a kind of connection to this collection. And it's, it's, you know, we talk a lot about AI nowadays and the role of AI with regard to the art world and could possibly, you know, AI take the role of a specialist one day. You know, I, AI doesn't have personal relationships like that. And I think that's really ultimately at the, at the heart of so much of what leads to these major consignments. We could certainly have an entire other conversation about AI and its <laughs> applications on the art world. We'll save that for a bit. And I also want to get back to this idea a little later about uh, winning an estate such as this uh, for the auction house and how that happens and how important that is for the auction house. Before we get to that, um, we're using um, the, the estate and the sale of the Emily Fisher Landau collection as a bit of a, a framework for talking about these, these kinds of ideas. And so I'm, I'm hoping before we get into it, will you please share with us a bit about who Emily Fisher Landau was and why is her collection considered so important? So Emily Fisher Landau is indisputably one of the greatest art patrons of the 20th century. So her name stands along, you know, Peggy Guggenheim and the Whitney's and many others who kind of really made a mark as women major collectors and patrons and, and really people who, who changed the face of the art world. Um, she did that because she made some very generous donations to the Whitney Museum and was very prescient in the way that she collected art. So she started out buying sort of modern masters like Picasso and Matisse and other kind of known blue chip names, and then expanded to really more cutting edge artists of her time. And this made her be really kind of unique in a way because she was buying outside of one particular, you know, artist and expanding into sort of newer kind of uh, genres that weren't necessarily as common for a woman in her, you know, late 60s, 70s, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So it was, um, it was quite an eye that she had. And really, that's why we're so excited about this collection, because it is uh, one of the best collections of the 20th century. So that's fascinating. So I'd love to uh, take a quick aside here and think of this idea you, you mentioned, you know, women who changed the face of the art world. And I think that's such an important statement. I've 
also notice uh, this trend has been a very powerful trend over many years now, but especially come to fruition with uh, women who really control the wealth that they're using for building their collections. And I wonder if you could kind of speak to that, if you've noticed that as well, as something that I've seen transition over the last several years. Have you seen that too? Do you have any sort of thoughts about that and how you see that kind of developing in the future? I, mean, I think more and more we see women collectors at the forefront of, of you know, buying in, in our sales. There are a number of different, you know, women collectors that I, I can't necessarily name per se as clients of ours, but who are really, you know, out there openly buying at very, very, very high levels. Um, Emily Fisherlando herself, you know, talked often about the fact that it was she was a jewelry collector because her husband used to buy her jewelry, and there was a famous heist of all of her jewelry, which led to a very significant insurance settlement. And it was that insurance settlement that ultimately gave her the means to be able to start buying in earnest in the art world. And I think that you know now that there are a lot of women who are self-made millionaires who are not just dependent on their husbands or other people's wealth, we are seeing more and more of that and that's also leading to different areas of the art world kind of getting more attention certainly women artists of color these are uh, you know artists that are getting a, a renewed focus because of different people buying this buying in, and participating in the art world as an art guy i'm not so sad to hear about the jewelry turning into an art collection <laughs> uh, later on but uh, i'm happy that all that all kind of worked out for the best for mrs uh, fisher landau uh, who uh, sort of moving on was obviously uh, extremely well known uh, both for her world class art collection and also her support of artists and art institutions. Uh, her name is on you know, prominent facilities and places, uh, which some of these might be occupying soon. <laughs> uh, she was known. She was a known figure in the art world, and from the lens of an auction house, the possibility of her estate eventually coming to auction could be easily imagined. So that leads me to be curious about. You know, for the typical single owner sale, if you can share about when Sotheby's begins conversations with collectors and families uh, such as that about this possibility of an individual sale. When do you start building that relationship? Uh, when do you broach the subject of an individual sale? So this can really vary. I mean, the typical scenario, of course, is upon death, because from a tax perspective, most collections are sold upon death. Um, however, these conversations can take place very much in anticipation of someone's passing because cl collectors often want to sort of prepare for every aspect of their lives, including the eventual sale and disposition of their collection. So there are collectors that we have worked with to essentially plan their sale of their collection in advance. And so everything is set up exactly as they would like it. And then when the time comes and they've passed, it's almost just like you press play and everything is all set. We've also had some collectors who, um, because of the way that they own their art collection, it was actually feasible for them to sell during their lifetime. We had a very elderly collector named Morton Mandel, really um, fantastic, interesting guy from Cleveland, Ohio. He was a uh, billionaire, self-made billionaire. And he sold his collection around five years ago, six years ago, and he was 96 years old, 97, and he was really excited about almost being present at his funeral in a way. He wanted to see the market validate the choices that he had made 20 and 30 years earlier. He was also a person who was buying contemporary in his 80s and 70s, um, and it was very exciting for him to work really closely with us to be able to do that. And so, like I said, it can be... It runs the gamut, but usually it's someone who is starting to think about planning who starts talking to us about these things. We don't usually see collectors in their 30s or 40s who are planning the eventual sale of their collection. Right. 
That would be a, a considerably pre-planning. <laughs> I love that story about Mr. Mandel. I mean, that really leads me to think about collectors who we work with um, who remain passionate about collecting throughout their lives. You know, it's, it's really fascinating. I love the, the energy that's behind that for people who really age is not a consideration. They often stay active in the markets. They love learning about the artists and the galleries and what's happening. So I can, I can relate to, to how uh, Mr. Mandel <laughs> felt about that. So I guess in, as part of that process, do you find it, it sort of what's most common in this case is it the collectors themselves are normally involved in the conversation around the planning possible sale, like as it was in that case, or do you find that it's more often handled by estate representatives or some combination? Uh, I would say for the most part, it's handled by the fiduciaries and who are involved in the in the disposition of the estate. Um, selling during your lifetime, as I mentioned, is is more of an exception than a rule, and even though it would be reasonable for collectors to plan in advance and sort of set it up and then just wait to pass. Many of them don't do that just by virtue of, I don't know if they just don't want to, you know, jinx it or they just don't want to get into the topic, but it, it's, that's still an unusual thing. So I'd say that the majority are still going to be the lawyers. Obviously when clients make their estate plans, sometimes they get a little bit more specific and they might say, I would like my collection to be sold in a single owner sale, or I'd like, you know, this artwork to be donated to this museum and otherwise everything else gets sold. So they do set some basic parameters, but in general, it's really down to the executors and the lawyers to really make the decisions about how things are going to be sold and where. Mm -hmm. Got it. And you know, one thing as part of that question that I didn't mention is like the family component as well. You know, how often are you in touch with family members as well as part of that process? Are they kind of weighing in on it? Uh, or again, do you find this mostly the fiduciaries that are sort of having the dominant part of the conversation? It depends largely on the family dynamics. Um, there are some, you know, collectors who are very close with their children and who actually make their children executors of estates or who, you know, give their children very key roles with regard to the art in particular. I once had, a, when I was a lawyer, a very important estate where the daughter was the special art trustee of the estate. And it was a role that they had created so that she could have specific input as to the disposition of the art. Um, and the executor was meant to listen to her with regard to that particular aspect of the estate plan. Um, but, you know, it can, like I said, it's very dependent on the family dynamics. There are some situations where the kids actually don't have any interest in the art at all. And they, in fact, perhaps resented the art because the parents spent more time caring about the art than they did about them. Um, sad, but not that unusual. So you'd be surprised how little sometimes the family actually is involved in the process. It is a very personal process. I think that's Absolutely. really no matter who the family is, the, the artwork, whether it's sort of treated across generations where everyone has a voice in it, or it's more of this sort of visionary single collector type. It really is quite personal for a lot of these families, yeah. I, I would say. So I would say, uh, thinking of that idea, um, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of a collector or a state who is approaching the possibility of a sale, uh, what questions would you encourage them to ask of themselves, of their families, and of the auction house? Um, and I guess I'm wondering what issues should they think through now to have the, the best outcome for everyone? So I would say the number one issue that we come across and that I think estates um, need to be on top of is the valuation of their collections. It is not uncommon for us to see estate plans that were created decades ago 
um, when specific works were valued very differently than they are today, and they were making specific bequests to one child over another. So we've had situations where, you know, Susie got the Picasso Marie Therese portrait from 1932, and Johnny got all of the English furniture. And perhaps in 1980, those were equally valued, but in 2023, they are most definitely not. And that is not going to lead to anything other than an estate litigation. That's fascinating. That, that, that's really interesting here. It's something that we definitely pay attention to as well and how to sort of be equitable in yeah. the distribution of those assets. But frequent valuations time. are the way to go and being thoughtful about the estate plan and perhaps not being so specific as to what you give one child over another unless you're very purposely trying to give one something much more valuable than the other. Um, the other thing is charitable donations. We are often you know, faced with clients who, in their estate planning, just assumed that a museum of their choosing would take whatever they wanted to give them. And as we know, that's not the case. Museums are full. They cannot exhibit most of the things they receive. And you can't assume that they're going to just take whatever you want to give them. In most cases, they actually will not. So making sure that those conversations are being had in advance with those institutions to make sure that they want what you want to give them and that whatever stipulations you want to put in place with regard to the exhibition of said work um, are valid, I would definitely recommend that because we've also seen a number of situations where clients have been certain at the time of their death that they were going to donate X work and then X work was not wanted by any museum, but there was no stipulation to sell the work. So the estate is then kind of in a bit of a catch-22 of how do they deal with a work that was not meant to be sold and was meant to be donated, but yet nobody wants. That's great. You know, kind of going back to our earlier conversation about relationships, I think that that is another point that I like to emphasize in, to this idea of whether or not a museum will want the piece in the first place. I, you know, I like to encourage clients to really think through the idea that um, it can be a collaborative sort of building of the collection. If you're in touch with curators who are at the museums, you know, understanding what it is that they would need to help tell their story, because the story of the institution may be different than the story of the family or the individual, you know, and coming to an alignment on that, if that's your goal to support them long term. Uh, can be important to do, um, which is, of course, different than uh, going to auction where you can, you know, find a home for it one way or another. Exactly. <laughs> okay, great. So I'd love to thank you very much for that. I'd love to kind of shift perspective just a little bit here to thinking from the, the auction house from Sotheby's perspective. And I was hoping you could speak to us about how important single owner collections have become to the market and why demand for them is at such a high right now. And we're thinking of you know, the Emily Fisher Landau collection is an example of that, but obviously, you know, there have been many headlines. You know, last year, Christie's with the Paul Allen sale. You know, these are very, very important moments. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of competition uh, for these um, these collections. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about the landscape of that. Well, first and foremost, single owner sales, especially when they are states, um, are really important to the market because they typically represent a huge influx of new material that is fresh to the market. And it's, it's exciting for the market to suddenly be able to see something along the lines of a 1932 Murray Therese portrait that has not been, you know, available for purchase for decades. Um, so that influx of fresh material is really crucial. Um, and ultimately, when you have a collection like this one or 
Paul Allen or some of the other major collections, Maclow, um, you're talking about collectors who are really known for their eye and whose name is actually really important with regard to you know the residence that they leave in a provenance. So clients are really excited to not only just buy the work itself, but to also buy a piece of that cachet, a piece of that history, to be able to say, yes, this is a Picasso, but this Picasso was owned by, you know, Emily Fisher Landau, or, you know, this uh, Botticelli was owned by Paul Allen. That has an extra level of meaning. So you're almost paying for two things, not just one. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that. This is a, a conversation we often kind of illuminate that valuation is, especially in the art market, you know, there's really no uh, ticker tape for a particular painting or you know, Picasso, even one from a particular year. Um, there are so many variables that go into that valuation. Provenance, of course, is, a, is an extremely important one. So if you have someone, um, and I encourage our clients to really think about it this way, too. If you really set that standard of quality for yourself, of what you expect your collection to be, that can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy on the valuation of the collection, that you become known, the works will actually become more known for their association with you as a collector, not just with the artist uh, uh, who made it, which I think can be very important. Absolutely. I mean, collectors like to also buy the stories of other collectors. You're not just buying the artwork. And we see, especially in Asia and other parts of the world that perhaps are a little bit newer to collecting, they are really, these particular stories really resonate with them. We've had collectors actually tell us after a successful purchase that they bought things really almost entirely because of the story behind the work. You know, it was the story that grasped their attention. It was the video that actually got them interested. And suddenly they were, you know, down the rabbit hole and couldn't stop themselves from bidding because they just needed to be able to participate in that, you know, Mm. moment. That's a great point. You know, I I like to bring up, uh, I believe it was Leo Castelli, who said that he was in the business of of Mm -hmm. myth-making and selling myths. And really, it is those stories behind it that bring the value uh, to the artwork and all in many cases. So um, I'd love to hear about the process of winning uh, an estate consignment of this caliber. And I'm hoping you can speak to us about the types of points that are being negotiated and the benefits that may be extended to convince an estate uh, to conduct the sale with with Sotheby's as opposed to another auction house. Yeah, to the extent that you can share, we'd love to hear about that process from your side. Well, as I was saying earlier, I think the history with a particular collector is often really important in that process and that decision making. Um, the type of connectivity that you have as a as a you know specialist when you've been in the trenches with that collector throughout their lives, helping to build the collection. You were there when they bought X, Y, or Z work. You know their motivation. That's really meaningful when you then go and sell the collection because you actually really, it's almost like having the collector there as part of the sale because you've got all of that storytelling about what went behind all of those purchases. Um, also, the personal relationship is is extremely important. The history, as I said, obviously that person has now passed and their relationship with our specialist has passed with them. But at the same time, families often really feel a level of respect towards that connectivity that's been built over the years and, and loyalty. Um, we also focus on the track record that we have with the particular artists in the collection. It's really important for us to be able to demonstrate our market share and our ability to really succeed and to get to the right bidders and underbidders, unsuccessful underbidders perhaps, for other similar works so that we can then say, okay, we know exactly who we are going to tac- tactically approach for this particular artwork. 
um, it's, it really makes a difference because unearthing every last bid is what leads to the ultimate highest hammer price. Nobody wants a work to sell on one bid. So making sure that you, you know, are able to get everyone out there and unearth every last bid is crucial. Finally, uh, I would be remiss to say if it wasn't financial terms that played a huge role in, you know, what the ultimate decision is as to where someone sells. Um, we can get very creative and we understand that with estates, oftentimes having a sense of financial certainty with regard to the sale of the collection is important because most of them have a tax bill to pay. So we often, you know, often uh, will have guarantees that we offer with regard to a collection. And those are very enticing for most estates because it's really appealing to know that at the end of the day, they will at least have a basic insurance policy of X as a floor that they would know they can count on. Great. That, that's extremely helpful to hear. Thank you. And it, it really leads me to think about a lot of the, the sort of the background uh, mechanisms that happen for a sale of this caliber of preparing for it, as you say, sort of to leave no stone unturned in terms of who might be a possible bidder uh, over for an important lot. And I'm curious then about the the marketing efforts, you know, all the details from the catalog to creating the market, finding the guarantors. I'd love to hear uh, some of the inner workings of that process uh, from the auction house that, that uh, our family office clients could learn from. So is, as you can imagine, it's quite a production. I mean, obviously it depends on the size of the collection, but for the typical single owner sale, we could be talking, you know, two, 300 objects. Um, oftentimes they are scattered around the globe because many of our clients, as we all know, have homes in different places. So we've sometimes had to collect artworks in extremely remote and exotic locations in the South Pacific or on islands in, you know, Greece, where you can actually only reach them by, you know, remote ferry. So it's not often easy, even just the process of collecting the works can be quite an ordeal. And so once we've collected the works, then we have to go into the, you know, analysis of what needs restoration. Many times things have to be restored or at least cleaned prior to sale. They need to be photographed professionally. They then need to be extensively cataloged and we need to do, you know, really intense due diligence to make sure that the provenance is as we believe it to be, that there are no possible claims or issues with regard to their ownership. Um, just a, a real analysis of, of, of what is this work and what is its history. Oftentimes we find out things about the works that even the collectors themselves didn't know when they bought them. Um, certainly to the extent that there are authenticity questions or committees that need to be you know, uh, checked before works are sold, we have to go through that process. There are many artists and European artists that still have authentication committees and foundations that we have to, in many cases, send the work to physically so that they can inspect it, issue a certificate, and the work is then sent back to us. Um, and then, of course, there's the marketing. So once we've actually gone through all of those basic steps and have cataloged the works, photographed them, etc., then we market them. So they go on usually a pretty extensive world tour. The Emily Fisher Landau collection is actually on the most extensive tour we've ever done, um, going to the Middle East, Asia, Europe, United States, multiple locations. So that is quite a process as well, making sure we're dispatching works to different places at different times that coincide with major art fairs or other art moments so that we can get a critical mass of people in front of the works. For example, there are works right now in London uh, because it's freeze week. So we do all of this in anticipation of the sale. Um, and it's, it's quite an orchestrated effort to make sure that we get an every last person who could possibly bid on these works attention. 
That's really fascinating to hear about that process. And it makes me wonder, you know, how, I mean, how much time is all of this? And this, it seems, I get the idea that it happens quite fast. You know? it- it does happen quite quickly, but I do think that if there's one word of advice for you know our listeners is that the more time we have, the better. Because the longer the time, the lead time, the more time we have to do appropriate marketing and press. Um, it is really great to be able to build a story out over a longer period of time. You don't want too long because you don't want the story to get old. But at the same time, it's really great to have an extensive period where you're in people's consciousness. And you don't want to have to rush through all of these things. And all of these things from the collection to the restoration, it all takes a really, it's, it takes a lot of time. So nowadays, many of our sales no longer have paper catalogs. That's made our deadlines much much longer because we are now able to close our catalogs sometimes even a week before the sale. Um, It used to be that you needed a month or a month and a half to be able to get the paper catalog printed, but it still doesn't mean that you want to wait until the last minute. The more is more. Yeah. Understood. Okay. That's very helpful. So uh, thinking again, sort of shifting just slightly, I'm, I'm curious to hear you know, how important is it to have a headline collection, sort of going back to this idea of the importance of the single owner collections, uh, how important is it to have, you know, that kind of collection as an anchor for your major sales in a particular season? And do you find that it's impactful to this to the rest of the sales that are happening as, as part of that overall season, uh, or is it more of an isolated event? It is incredibly important to the other sales that are happening that season because we always find that the single owner sale or the major sale of the season creates a halo effect for the other works in the auctions. Essentially, people come to see the main event and then will stay to see everything else and then they get really focused on the other things that are on, you know, on view at that time. We often find too that it's helpful to have things that are perhaps similar to some of the things in the big event but perhaps at a lower price range so that you can sort of appeal to different different clients and different price points. So it's it's un it's it's without question that single owner sales in a big marquee week are usually going to create a, a halo of of positive, you know, effects for everything else that's being sold that week. That's great. Thank you. So why don't we let's think about the sale for a second. Uh, I'd love the chance for our listeners to hear a bit about a few of the uh, artworks that will be coming up as part of this sale. Um, Obviously, I think we should start with uh, the Picasso uh, film Alamont or Woman with Watch. Uh, this is certainly the uh, probably the, the headline piece. I think it's safe to say its estimate is currently uh, in excess of $120 million. It's painted from 1932. I'd love to hear about this artwork, uh, your thoughts on it, why is it special, and uh, why do you think it has the value attached to it that it does? So this painting is uh, a very rare, monumental size a portrait of Marie Therese Walter, Picasso's lover. Um, it was painted in 1932, which, as um, anyone who is a fan of Picasso knows, it was his quote unquote magical year. So it was a year in which he was, you know, five years into his relationship with uh, the 23 year old Marie Therese, very much in love with her, enraptured by her as his muse. And he painted some of the most extraordinary works of his career during that seminal year. And this picture is actually particularly rare because most of his portraits of Marie Therese are of her sort of sleeping, kind of like an odalisque nude. This is her upright in a vertical position, and she is fully clothed, very strong image of her, and she's wearing a watch. 
Um, Picasso was a famously huge fan of watches and he collected watches himself. And it is only one of three paintings of Picasso, made by Picasso in which a subject is wearing a watch. So this work is particularly important for all of those reasons, but also because most of his 1932 works are in museums. So this is a rare opportunity to be able to get such a, you know, crucial work by Picasso from this incredibly important year at auction. That's great. It is, it is rare. Do, you, do we know of the approximate time of when um, Emily Fisher Landau acquired this work? She acquired this work in 1968. Um, it, was, uh, it was acquired directly from Picasso by Ernst Beiler, and he then sold it, and she then purchased it in 1968. Incredible. Great. So let's move to another artwork, um, the Ed Ruscher, uh, Securing the Last Letter, uh, or Boss, uh, wonderful painting. We're recording now in mid-October 2023, a few weeks out from uh, the sale here at, at Sotheby's. And also there is the wonderful Ed Ruscher retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art right now. I'm sure it's not coincidental that this piece <laughs> is, uh, is highlighted as part of that. That exhibition is wonderful. If you haven't seen it, uh, this painting is from 1964 and has an estimate of 35 to $45 million. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, about this painting as well. Uh, this is an exceptional work. It is a, a work that is really rare because of its subject matter. There are not that many of this style of, you know, securing the last letter uh, works that Ruscher did. One of the most recently sold was Radio at Christie's a few years back. Um, this one, because of the, you know, with Ruscher, the power of the words that he uses is really meaningful to the value of the works. Um, I think the word boss is one that will resonate with a lot of people. It's a very strong image, black and red, um, and is already one that has, has become legendary. And so the fact that we are going to be able to have it for sale there is, is, is something that all of our specialists are very excited about. Well, I have to admit, my colleague and I made it over to Sotheby's when a handful of the works were on view before going off to travel. And, of course, we made sure to get our selfie uh, in, front of, <laughs> in front of the boss. It's a frequently <laughs> selfie. <laughs> Yeah, we were guilty of that. Okay, great. Uh, moving, there's one more work I wanted to touch on, a um, uh, wonderful painting uh, by Jasper Johns called Flags uh, from 1986, obviously um, highlighting his you know, very famous uh, and recurring imagery of the American flag. In this case, it's sort of doubled and they're hanging vertically, so to speak. Um, the estimate for this is also 35 to 45 million. Um, this is a uh, yeah, incredible example of that work. Love to hear your thoughts about this one as well. So, of course, Jasper Johns is really known for his flag paintings. When you think of Jasper Johns, that's what you think of American flags. So here you have two American flags, and they are, you know, again, quintessentially iconic. Remarkably, Johns was fairly prolific, but he actually only made 26 flag paintings. So they're actually quite rare. And so being able to have one available for purchase at, at auction is, is an extraordinary opportunity because the majority of his flags, especially the ones that are oil on canvas and ones of this scale, are in museums and public institutions. So this is a, a rare chance to be able to, to own a Jasper Johns flag. Great. Well, Mari Claudia, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. It's been really illuminating to hear your perspectives uh, from the estate process, from a little behind the scenes at the auction house, and also discussing some of the works on view. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Great. This has been the, uh, the article podcast from the UBS Art Advisory. My name is Matthew Newton, UBS Art Advisory Specialist. Thank you so much for listening in.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 